Hi, everybody. We're back. Welcome to an all-new episode of Dead and Married. This is the beginning of season two. Yep. Oh, say hi, Travis. Hi. <laughs> I said hi. You can keep going. <laughs> it's been a while. It's kind of weird, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. how you feel being away from it? I don't know. I miss, I miss doing this, you know. Um, but it's been really busy, so I guess I'm just I'm kind of tired. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's been insanely busy around here, like, but I've missed this so much, and I've been really ready to get back to it. All right. So, well, what are we doing this week? Today we are talking about Hellraiser, my favorite movie of all time, and I know I've said before uh, that Predator is my favorite movie of all time, but I will, I will say that Hellraiser is my favorite horror movie of all time. So this is usually the one that I get a little bit of flack for, especially in Facebook groups and stuff, because usually if you're going to get somebody to vote, you know, if, if one series had to go, which would it be? And it's almost always Hellraiser and everybody's like, well, this series sucks. And it's like, have you watched the movie? I mean, we, we've talked about this some, especially throughout Halloween, you know, where you have an instance where yeah, those first few movies are great, but then they really drop in quality in some cases, and it's a mixed bag of a series. And in my opinion, Hellraiser's really no different. I mean, in, in my opinion, I would say the first five are really great, but I've got, I've got a really long history with this franchise, and it's really dear to me, And but maybe I'm biased, so... I think you probably are. <laughs> I will say, though, that in m most times it seems like Pinhead gets left out when people talk about the top movie monsters, movie villains or whatever. You know, you get Leatherface and you get Chucky and Jason and Michael Myers and who's that other one? Did I say Freddie already? I think you did. And Pinhead's just not even part of the conversation. And I he's really like, don't understand It's like he's that. been relegated to B-list in the horror community. I really don't understand. Well, he's always A-list in my heart, so. Yeah, you've said that in another episode, actually. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, people shit on these movies. The first one isn't bad. Like, none of the Hellraisers, I would, would I say those are my favorite. But I guess just from a film standpoint, first one's not bad. Second one's not horrible. Third one's not... I think that's Hell on Earth, isn't it? Yes. With the guy that throws CDs out of his mouth. <laughs> okay, never mind. That was pretty bad. Oh. But, yeah, people talk about that a lot. That you know, maybe they, they did the first one, and it, was, and it was pretty good, and then they dropped in quality after that. But let's talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Those did not get better as they went along. No, and they keep fucking trying to redo those like there's another one that's coming out that's yet again filmed in another country and it's like just stop guys you, yeah. you can't get it so we, just stop and we talked about the uh the halloween series mm -hmm. they didn't get better really as they went along well at least not for a little bit i, I mean, would say not up until 2018 yeah but i mean it's not maybe they didn't get at they didn't sink quite as low as some of the hellraiser <laughs> movies did some of them are pretty fucking but bad. it's not like everyone after the first one was a hit and so they kind yeah. of shit on hellraiser but they never go back and look and, and think that most of these serialized horror movies you had the first one that that turned into the classic mm -hmm. and then there was just some trash after that sort no, of not no. completely but you know what i mean they didn't get better so before we get off into talking about the one that started it all um i will say for me 
I actually like to watch part one and two as sort of a double feature. Like, does that sound strange? Because part two picks up immediately where part one left off. And so, and it also really expands upon the lore and just really brings this whole big universe into where we get to see what hell looks like. We get to get some of the rules, I guess, for what Cenobites are allowed to do and capable of. We get some of their backstory, in particular Pinheads, which is fucking crazy shit. It's scary, even. Um, And, of course... And I'm not going to get into it now, but I have also done the research and watched all the videos and read all the things about the backstories of all the other Cenobites. It's really interesting shit. Um, But I loved that about part two, that it just seemed like Hellraiser, but on this massive scope. It it took it and it it dialed it up to 11. Um, And I know a lot of people don't like part three. They call that the MTV Hellraiser because... I'm not even sure where that comes from. And maybe, I mean, the only thing I can see about it is that they took Pinhead and they basically wanted to turn him into one of the slashers. But I don't have a problem with it because if you go back and you look at those first two Hellraiser movies, Pinhead's in those all of what? Five minutes? Yeah, he's not in them very much. Yeah. So, and Doug Bradley is just an integral part of that character. And... I had absolutely no problem with him getting more to do and more to say. And in in particular in Hellraiser 3, he had some of the greatest scenes. He had some of the greatest one-liners. Like, I mean, um, I'm going to hell. We already know this. But for the Black Mass scene alone, that movie's worth it. Like, that, that was just epic on a scale I can't even talk, like, begin to describe. Um... Part four, I think, had Kevin Yeager stayed on as a director and got to see his vision um, brought to fruition, it might have been a better movie. But just because of the studio stepping in and telling him, no, we don't want to do this, we want to do this, and him saying, well, fine, fuck it, I'm just going to leave, I think is ultimately what really hurt it. Um and they had some really great ideas. There's some good work prints out there. Um, you can get on YouTube and you can find people who have made these long videos or feature length films of all the footage that was taken out of the original film. And it would have been really great. Like, yeah, it's it's really disappointing. And then I would say part five was the last one I really enjoyed. And it was one of the first ones I ever saw. I think I saw part one, part two, and part three. And then I saw uh, Inferno not long after that. So it was one of the first ones I ever saw. And <laughs> this is where I make the note that I distinctly remember this is where I started having sleep paralysis. Because I don't remember if you were working overnights at that time or... I don't know. I just know that Inferno was on every time I came home. <laughs> I think I probably was. <laughs> I think I was working nights. And I distinctly remember that I would put on that movie to go to sleep because I'm a freak. And I would it's like I would wake up and somehow the movie would still be going, but it wouldn't be going. But every time I woke up, regardless of whether the movie was running or not, it was still going. And that was the first time that I thought, 
wow, that's really weird. It's like I'm having a dream within a dream and I'm completely aware of what's going on and yet I can't do anything about it. You know, it's so weird. And I've I've struggled with sleep paralysis ever since that. So that needs to be their next sequel. So Hellraiser Inception. <laughs> so right. it's got a special place in my heart. <laughs> and then I would say, oh, after that, they got pretty bad. Um, Look, when you get to... <laughs> this sounds so shitty. But when you get to the point where you're, you're like... What's the biggest name we got? Lance Henriksen? Cool. Roll with it. <laughs> I just... Yeah. It's nothing against him personally. And and I dig the fact that the guy, he'll just jump into any movie and he doesn't care. And he's not a bad actor at all. No, so no, absolutely That's not, not what I'm saying. But uh, this is so bad. He typically... He seems to be the actor of last resort for horror movies, sort of. You know what I mean? I like a, it seems like I've seen him in a other... lot, like a lot of the, like the, your sci-fi type horror movies and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, like he is the big name attached to it. Yeah, which I, I don't know. He does a lot of stuff, and again, I, I totally mean, for respect good, the fact for good that, reason that he'll do anything. The dude has been killed by a Terminator, alien, and predator. So I mean, <laughs> that's uh, he's got a pretty yeah. good pedigree there. Yeah. I don't know. That sounds really awful when I say it out loud, but <laughs> but six through eight, and and I mean even Inferno, they both had had scripts that were originally Hellraiser scripts, but they had a script in the studio, and then they were like, oh well, let's turn this into a Hellraiser movie. Let's just throw Pinhead in it. It it really suffered. So the question is, was Clive Barker involved with any of those? No, that's the problem right yeah. there. Yeah, um, I mean, I think. I, I don't remember if it was Judgment, where he had tweeted, like, if anybody says I had anything to do with this, I did not. This is no fucking child of mine, or something. Like, I wouldn't even wipe my ass with the script, I believe I think is what I he remember, said. I think I remember when you, you told me about that. Yeah. And the last one that I really remember watching and being like, okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're picking up some traction again, was probably Judgment. And yes, it was not uh, Doug Bradley. It was Paul T. Taylor who played the role of Pinhead there. And he did okay. And I've watched interviews with the guy. He seems really nice. And he said, look, I know, I knew I was not going to be able to play. Was this the to... Chubby Cheeks Pinhead? No, that's uh, that's the last one before that. Okay. Um, he said, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to fill these shoes. He's like, but it was a job and it was an amazing job. And he's like, and I was so excited to get to do this. So I got to give the guy a little credit. I mean, and he, he tried, he came closer to, to that, what that part looked like as opposed to the guy that was in revelations. Well, great value pinhead. <laughs> chubby baby. pinhead. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he gets to say I was pinhead. Exactly. How many other people can say that Two. Yeah. In the world. Yeah. There you go. And that's yeah. some bragging rights. And that it, it is always one thing that kind of bugs me. You know, people are like, well, I don't want to watch uh, anybody else be Freddy. I don't want to hear anybody else be Chucky. I don't want to, you know, and, and to me, that's completely unfair. You know, um, Yaya uh, Mateen or Abdul Mateen, I can't remember. He did amazing coming back and being a new Candyman. And I was surprised at how much I enjoyed that iteration of him. So I think that it can be done. You just have to find the right person to do it. Okay, let's be fair, though. All, all we saw of him being Candyman was his transformation into him. We didn't actually get to see him. Yeah, at the very, very, at the very, very end when he's okay, going so and slaughtering the cops. 30 seconds of that. But still, he did very well. I'm not saying the guy did a bad job. I, I still <laughs> like the movie. I'm just saying that 
as far as him being Candyman, we really didn't get a lot of that. Yeah. And say what you will about the Child's Play remake, but Mark Hamill did a really good job as Chucky, I thought. But the guy, you know, he's been doing the Joker for ever and has had all of these other voice roles. He's done a shitload of uh, voice work. Yeah. I mean, way more than I thought he had. If they were going to pick anybody, he was good and he he's very sinister. I mean, he's yeah, I thought he did a great job. He went over to the dark side. (laughs) Right. And then, of course, James Jude Courtney taking over for Michael Myers. I mean, it can be done. We can replace our actors, you know, I mean, for every James Jude Courtney you get, you get a James Earl Haley, and <laughs> he did okay. The movie was shit, but he also, I don't know. I'm just, I'm having a hard time with people saying that nobody else can play Pinhead but Doug. And well, they, they typically shit on the first few replacements for a horror movie icon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like typically, like, so Nick Castle set the, the high watermark sort of for, he, he was the end all Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Nobody was truly happy with any Michael Myers that came after that until Well, I think now. people I mean, were okay with Dick the, Warlock. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, a lot of the guys that played Michael after that, they got a, a lot of grief yeah. about it. And let's not forget that Jason has been portrayed by a different actor every single film up until Kane Hodder came along. That's true. So, I, I, I mean... You I could think, say yes, but he's not showing his face. He's not, but they each have different mannerisms. They each have a different flavor about them. They're none of them are consistent until you get to Kane, who yeah. has his own signature style. Right. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with when they're picking the successor, I guess, to play that role. How much effort do they put into actually selecting someone? You know what I mean? They probably did a ton of auditions before they went with Mark Hamill to do Chucky, and I don't think he did a bad job. Um, I thought he did great. I don't know how long they looked before they found James Jude Courtney. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably didn't just go, oh, let's just use that guy over there. He's he's tall enough. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I'm sure there was a selection process. With Hellraiser, it seems like at least the, the Chubby Cheeks pinhead, they just picked a guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there was no audition process. They just went, oh, he's bald. Get him. You know what I mean? And yeah. He may not be bald, but you know what I mean? Well, and, and the other thing is, is the dude looks, I mean, if you look at photos of him, he looks kind of buff. He's and, swole. Yeah. And Doug Bradley is not. But you know what I mean? I think a lot of it depends on how much effort they put into selecting the actor that's going to play that part. Yeah. And in some of them, you can tell that they they did auditions and they really thought about it. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But... That being said, even with Great Value Pinhead, I gotta say that Hellraiser Revelations is a guilty pleasure of mine. It's horribly acted. You can tell that they shot this thing in three weeks. Like, no, it was a week, I think. Like, it was such a small amount of time. They had no money. But for all intents and purposes, I felt like they were actually trying. I mean, it's kind of the... Oh, goodness. The Force Awakens of Hellraiser movies where they basically just redid the first story again. But at least it was a Hellraiser movie. It wasn't somebody else's script for a story that had nothing to do with it before. You were back to having a story of these two guys who were, you know, basically trying to get the other guy's skin. It felt as close to a Hellraiser script as anything else that had preceded it. So... 
as much as people hate that one, and I don't like Pinhead at all. I, I can't stand him. But the story itself, as badly as it was acted, felt more like a true Hellraiser movie than any of the ones before. It wasn't like, I don't know, Deader. Right? Exactly. I don't even know what that movie was. Um, That was one with the spunky reporter, I'm a badass. Oh, no, no, I know. And... <laughs> I remember which one it was. I just... Um, they it's, were... it's like they made a movie and they were like, shit, nobody wants this. Let's put Hellraiser's <laughs> name on it and then we'll get I... some obscure... Uh, that's another one. It's like they filmed it in two weeks in yeah. some weird Eastern European country. And actually, well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And I actually like part six too, uh, Deader, but that was because... Not Deader. I'm sorry. Uh, Hellseeker. And that was because they found a way to work Kirsty back into the script. And I love Dean Winters. Uh for everybody who doesn't know Dean Winters, he's Mayhem in the Allstate commercials. But I'm a big fan of the show Oz, and he was one of my favorite characters in that show. And he did a great job. The problem with that script was it was Jacob's Ladder. That's that's basically all it was, where you get this guy that's like, uh, this big thing happened to him, and he's like, am I crazy? Am I not crazy? Am I seeing this? Am I not seeing this? So it just felt like a big ripoff of Jacob's Ladder to me, which is obviously the superior film. Um, but I felt like Judgment, which is the most recent one we have, they introduced some neat things into it. I really enjoyed the character of the auditor. I thought he was fun. Um, the only problem that I really had with that one, besides the acting not being wonderful, was the story. Again, it felt like it was a ripoff of Seven, where kind of had, uh, I can't remember what the killer's name was, um, but he was acting in The Seven Deadly Sins. Well, no, no, no. Not the Seven what? Deadly Sins. It was the Ten Commandments. What? Yeah, he was a Ten Commandments killer. Um, oh, in this movie. I thought in, you were talking about Seven. I was like, Kevin Spacey? No, 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 no. No, no. His name was Kevin Spacey. Preceptor, that's, that's what it was. The The killer's name was a Preceptor. Yeah. Um, but the auditor was great, and that was played by the director, who Gary Tunnicliffe, who's been in, in the makeup department since part three. So if anybody knew the series, you know, the guy... Sh- the guy knew it. The problem was he went for a lot of shock value and a lot of gross out stuff. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, there's like things with spit and vomit and um, topless jurors, like childs drinking tears of children on flesh. Like it was it was a really gross movie. And you could go back and say, OK, but yeah, part one and part two were pretty gross. Not to that level. It felt like shock for shock's sake, I guess. But at least it was something different, and it kind of felt like, okay, what are we going to do with this? And at the end of that one, they made, they banished Pinhead from hell, and he became human again. He was like a homeless guy in the alley, so you're kind of like, oh, okay, what are they going to do with this? And then nothing. So, But right now, as we sit, there's going to be two series come out. There's going to be one on Hulu coming out soon, um, which I'm pretty excited about, and they're taking a completely different route with pinhead this time where it's going to be played by a transgendered actress and that to me is kind of intriguing because if you go back to the hellbound heart they they never say that pinhead's a male they say that he speaks with a girlish glee so that's going to be interesting to see if that's more what was intended you know um but on the flip side of that is they're also having the series on hbo that clive barker himself is behind and that that's like fucking a that's like getting john carpenter coming back you know like oh my god what's gonna happen so kind of i'm kind of excited to see where this is going and i hope i hope we get these because we need 
good quality Hellraiser, or at least I do. I need it back in my life again. So yeah, we'll see how they do. <laughs> I got high hopes for the one with uh, with Clive Barker. Maybe not so much for the one that he's not involved in. Well, and, and it Although being HBO, that, they're known for having a better standard. Yeah. Although I think that having a, a, a transgender actor in there is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at, uh, I don't know what, I don't remember what it says in Hellbound Heart, but what is it? Uh, Lord of Illusions, I think, uh, with the uh, shit. Now I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, you had the detective. Mm-hmm. Right. He was like a mm-hmm. the magic detective or whatever. Yeah. And they end up going into hell and, and all that stuff. I don't think they ever... Oh, you're talking about the Scarlet Gospels. Yeah, the Scarlet Gospels. I don't think they ever assign a gender to no. the hell priests. I mean, you could say that they call them hell priests instead of hell priestesses, which implies male. But mm-hmm. gender's never really talked about. No. I mean, they, they, leave, them, they leave them fairly ambiguous yeah. in there as, as to... Well, yeah, so they, they, they I don't have a problem sexless kind of, all. period. So um, with that, I think it'll bring a new, a new take on it. Again, it's just it's going to depend on a lot of it on makeup effects. Because mm-hmm. if they don't get the makeup effects right, it's not going to matter who they put in the makeup. So that's got to be good. Um, and then whoever the, the the actor or actress is that plays it, they're going to have to bring it right to live up to Doug Bradley. Yeah. So because I I think. <laughs> So if if everybody hasn't figured out that I'm a giant freak at this point, you never will. But uh, there's just something about Doug Bradley as Pinhead. He just brings off this arist- aristocratic air, like worldly, like regal. Like I think Clive Barker said, he's a man who's seen the world and he's bored of the world. Well, and even in the Scarlet Gospels, they are like a higher caste than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And he yeah, acts, you get he down to where like, some pen, or some Cenobites are just creatures. Like yeah. there's there's sub level. Yeah, but he 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 brings that to the role, and so whoever whoever plays him and whatever goes comes next is going to have to be able to kind of capture that. I think. Yeah, and you you do, in my opinion, you do have a level of sexiness that is also brought to it. That's weird. <laughs> I'm sorry, like I said, giant freak, but. Still, there are us out there, including myself, that find the idea of Cenobites and um, the idea of pleasure and pain to be a sexy thing, uh, which I know says all kinds of things about me. But, uh, but yeah, he, he, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of women out there that are like, Oh, I just want Michael to choke me or, you know. Do you have a secret, like, whip collection or something that I don't know about? <laughs> Shh. <laughs> but anyway, but there there are us that exist that maybe we'll pick out one killer that we have, you know. So, but moving on. <laughs> Please <Yeah>. move on. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess uh, we'll go ahead and get into this thing, but I'm, I want to tell everybody first, you know, like I said, this is our, our the beginning of our second season, and so Travis and I have decided we're going to try something different. We've got um, we got a new normal thing starting to happen here, and we've got to adapt with what's being thrown at us and roll with it, so uh, where before we just kind of went through our films beat by beat, we've decided to stop doing that because... Obviously, if you guys are here, you know these movies. 
you know them probably as well as we do. Or so, better. Or better, yeah. So what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about them. We're going to talk about what we like and what we don't like, what worked and what didn't work, our favorite scenes, our favorite kills, our favorite actors, actresses, that sort of thing, and just a good time for once instead of putting so much pressure on ourselves to get everything right so we're glad you're here with us and i guess let's get into it yeah it's going to sound a little bit different too because i'm not going to spend three hours editing every episode to try to take every weird noise out of the background okay so noted no weird noises no well i mean you're (laughs) you've made them before i was just (laughs) taking them out now i'm just going to run a couple filters and roll with it (laughs) i don't have time to do that anymore so yeah This is your obligatory spoiler warning. At Dead and Married, we talk about major plot points that might ruin films for the casual viewer. If you don't mind spoilers, join us now. So, I think everybody's aware that this film was made in 1987 and it was directed, written and directed by Clive Barker. But I, I will say that there are tons and tons of videos. There's a really kick-ass documentary called Leviathan, the story of Hellraiser 1-2 that you can go check out. Um, that will give you all your behind-the-scenes specs and great stories. Um, there, there's also a YouTube channel called Marvelous Videos that will go through and tell you basically anything you want to know. And then, of course, you know, take it with a grain of salt. There's always IMDb to get your fact fix. But we're just going to talk about it because... I don't know that I would call some of the stuff on IMDb a fact fix, because some of it's not facts. Yeah, as I said, you have to take it with a grain of salt, but we're here to we're here to talk about my love for this movie. I can say our love for this movie, but we're here to talk my love for this movie anyway. Agreed. <laughs> not our. <laughs> so, Travis, uh, what was? do you remember the first time we saw this? Was it me that introduced you to it? Oh, yeah, because this is not one I would have ever picked up on my own. <laughs> Travis is a, we we've talked about this many times where Travis is was raised in a different household where give me comedy or give me death that's <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at well even so just some of the I, I would say particularly in part three some of the religious aspects you're not usually a fan of yeah not so and much. that's just because of the way you were raised yeah. but for some of us who do not have a giant religious background or in my case are not religious at all um doesn't doesn't really bother me but anyway so the first time I saw it I think I was in I was probably a junior or senior in high school and my parents got divorced that year and I mean well not my parents parents is my mom and his stepfather I had at the time they got divorced and she had moved out and he was in a job where he was gone all the time so by the time I was 17, 18, and I could get my my first renter's card, I would go to our video store and just devour every horror movie they had. Because you have that memory of walking into a video store, and maybe not you, but me going through a horror section, and you would just look at the different artwork for the boxes. Because that was a big thing. Like, the artwork, some, in most cases, was almost more important than the movie itself. You would just see a box and be like, oh my god, what the fuck is that? Or, ooh, that looks really cool. Or, you know, it's 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 a lost art for sure. Well, it's the same way I pick a bottle of wine. If it's got a cool <laughs> label, I'll buy it. And then you open it and you taste it. And you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what are you talking about wine? Don't you mean hard liquor? <laughs> well, anything. If you put a cool label on it, I'm going to buy it. 
I don't always enjoy what's in there, but yeah. So, sell, so box art is is a big thing. But yeah, you're you're talking about Sykes Movie Land. <laughs> or I was thinking Golden Goose. It, there was one now, called so it, Golden Goose or yeah, something back then. We never too. went there. Those yeah. <laughs> that's where all those weird kids hung out. But <laughs> I was a kept, weird kid. I know, that's yeah. <laughs> but at that one they at, at Sykes they kept the uh I think the horror movies were like in the back right corner so that it wouldn't offend the Baptists when they came in. Because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't put horror movies up front. Yeah. Which we're talking about a town of 2,500 people. I'm surprised we even had a damn place to rent movies. Right. But. You had to drive 20 minutes to do anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no, I I remember, because uh, I had a friend that worked at the video store, and they, in, in the back of that particular video store, for whatever reason, they also had a tanning bed. And so since my friend worked there, she let me go and use the tanning bed in the afternoons after school. Um and then I would pick up like a movie or two on my way back. So yeah, I'm cruising through there and I picked up a lot of really, and not even just horror movies. I picked up a lot of really cool movies just throughout that experience. Like I remember watching uh, American History X during that time um, and just getting to see all this really cool shit that I would not have gotten to see otherwise if my parents had still been together. But I remember in particular seeing the box for Hellbound one day and it was just a picture of Pinhead and Deep Throat, and Deep Throat is uh, the female Cenobite. And it at the bottom it said "Time to Play," and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, like that looks fucked." So yeah, of course the first thing I did was I got to watch that. So <laughs> I grabbed Hellraiser, um, not Hellraiser two, even though that box you know intrigued me more. But I grabbed Hellraiser and watched it in. Oh my God, it just, the fucking floodgates opened because you go through your life and you see all, you know, your, your main three, your big three, and you get the formula of just doing this or that. But Hellraiser was the first one that you saw what else horror could be. I didn't know that body horror was a thing. I didn't know that dark love stories were a thing. And so this just completely awakened something in me film-wise, and I've never looked back. So that's probably why it's my favorite. So when you and I got together, then we got... It wasn't our first apartment, um, but I think it was our second one when you had gotten this job in another city and stuff. Um, we had this other store in the mall called Suncoast, remember? Oh, yeah. And we went and we spent so much money there because we didn't have any cable. We didn't... We had, Our DVD collection was pathetic. Um, I think you had like surf ninjas and heat. So <laughs> yeah, I think that was a... <laughs> maybe pitch black, but we definitely that's when our DVD collection started, and I think that was the first time you might have watched Hellraiser with me was in yeah. that apartment. Well, Suncoast was badass because it wasn't like a, a video rental store where they had you know all of them faced out. These you were just looking kind of at the spines of the movies, mm-hmm. and it was just loaded like floor to ceiling. And they had bootleg editions. They had all yeah, kinds of they shit. Had, in there. Yeah, like I remember I bought Halloween Four in like a tin box. I wish I still had that damn thing. Yeah, they had special editions. They had stuff you couldn't find anywhere else. Yeah, which was kind of I, I missed that. And Dragon Ball, like you could go find Dragon Ball there, which yes, was you really could. cool. Yeah, it was an awesome store. I miss it like as much as I miss Blockbuster. <laughs> But yeah, I just remember like being super obsessed and like wanting to buy t-shirts and all this stuff. And you were like, I don't know how I feel about you having that stuff in the apartment. Pan two years later where I've got like my pinhead Funko Pop sitting right on my desk. And, you know, uh, 
I think I think Travis, <laughs> you've learned to kind of roll with the punches over the years, more or less. <laughs> that being said, he still wouldn't probably wouldn't allow me to have a pinhead cut out sitting in our office the way we have a Michael one. <laughs> that would be creepy. <laughs> but anyway, so. Like I was saying, this was the first body horror movie I'd ever seen. You know, once I got to later in life, finally watching The Fly, now I'm like, I, I love body horror films so much. They're one of my favorites, or it's one of my favorite genres, like I've said before. But this was just, there's so much to unpack with this film and so much to like about it. Um, so what is it in particular that you don't like about it? Just out of curiosity. What I don't like about it? Yeah. I thought we were going to try to keep this episode short. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is just not a story that speaks to me, I guess. I don't know. It's just this this whole... I, I think it, he's, he's sort of a supernatural entity, and I've never been into the supernatural thing. I think that's it. Like overall, like mm-hmm. in, in broad strokes. He's kind of a supernatural being, and I just don't dig that, really. I feel like they spend too much time with uh, the uh, who the, the guy and his wife at the beginning. Like, he's obviously an idiot. She's not likable. Julia is not likable really? at all. Okay. Um, no, she's a horrible person. <laughs> Kirsty is... Oh, she's she's not bad, and I'm not talking about the actors' performances necessarily. Oh, no, 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 I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm talking. I think they all played their roles very well. Very well. I'm just talking about the characters that they played. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for the dad. Julia, Larry. Julia was a horrible person. Kirsty was, I don't know. She did a good job. I just didn't care for her as a final girl, really. Uh-huh. I, you know, and uh, like Frank, I just didn't care for Frank. I mean, he was a piece of shit. <laughs> he really was. I mean, he was like, he was squatting in that house. I guess he just. He just he traveled the world dipping his wick in anything that moved, <laughs> and I just don't like that guy, you know. And and if I, I you, they do get their comeuppance right at the end, and Pinhead get gets everybody basically except for Kirsty and Julia. No, no, no. Uh, Frank kills Julia. Frank kills Julia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because in the next one they bring her back, but mm-hmm. um, I think it comes back to I, I've said it before. I have to be invested in the characters. You have to do something through the course of the movie to make me care about whether they live or die. And they never did that for me in this one. Hmm. I just, I never formed a bond with any of these characters. So I really didn't care what happened to them. Like if anything, I was probably more connected to Pinhead than any of the characters that you're supposed to feel sorry for. You know, oddly enough, I can see that. I just, cause I mean, by the time he showed you're up. You're very by, good at being judgmental. By the time he showed up, I'm like, yeah, kill those fuckers. They deserve it. Kill them all. He's a whiny bitch. She's devious. He's a man hoe. Kill them all. <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah. So I guess uh, I'm going to be the complete opposite. And there's nothing about this film that I don't like at all. Um, Could they have, I would like to have seen what they could have done with a bigger budget. But for the budget they had, oh my gosh, like some of the practical effects are just unheard of for what they, for what they had. And Clyde Barker being a first time director, he he did amazing. I mean, he had said, you know, because he, he did have some of his adaptations, or I mean, he did some have some of his uh, written material adapted. Uh, like they had done Rawhead Rex, I believe. And I can't remember what the other one was just off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, Rawhead Rex is a comedy. <laughs> but 
he saw those which he had nothing to do with and was like, fuck it, I'm they're butchering my shit, so I'm gonna come in here and I'm gonna do this myself. And for what he did, and like I said, being a first time director, he did absolutely amazing. There's some shots in there that are beautiful and unrivaled in my opinion, and we'll and we'll talk about those a little yeah. bit, but Yeah. The special effects were definitely good. Like when Frank's coming up out of the floor. Oh yeah. Um I don't know how they did that. I mean, I'm sure it tells you in your documentary how they did that. But yeah. It's it's not something you see anymore. I, I can tell you a little bit um, about that, obviously. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, the visuals were good. I think the camera work was good. Again, it's just the story that I guess I don't care for. Mm-hmm. And it's because there was no bond with the characters. So why don't we talk about that but a little bit? I would like to see a bigger budget version of this. And I, I think I said that when we covered uh, Nightbreed. Mm-hmm. That I think all of Clive Barker's movies that have ever been made, they need to go get him <laughs> and do him again and give him some real money to do it. Because his writing's tremendous. He, he, I would, I'm, I know you're going to disagree with me, but I'd put him on the level of Stephen King that he really. Oh, you shut your mouth. He, I'm sorry. He really. <laughs> you read the Scarlet Gospels. He really paints a picture, and everything has just got such scope that it was like particularly with the Scarlet Gospels, that you're like, oh my God, I would love to see what this would look like if given enough money. Yeah. I never read The Hellbound Heart, but in the Scarlet Gospels, I I will say that some of the visuals that he describes are so bizarre that they're hard to visualize (laughs) what it is that he's actually talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because it's it's out there. Like he, that man has fucked up dreams. (laughs) Or peyote. Or both. I don't know. But... But yeah, his, I don't know. His writing is, it's not bad. It's just not my favorite, I guess. Yeah. I'm, he, I'm a, I'm a King fan through and through. Yeah. You definitely got to have, I would say he's got his audience, you know, because I, I'm a King girl myself. King's always going to be my favorite, but I would put Barker as number two any day. But so real quick plot synopsis. Okay. Um, basically, uh, this woman has had an affair outside of her marriage, and the guy that she had an affair with, he... Didn't she fuck Frank on her wedding day, though? <laughs> I don't think it was like, her wedding day, but... She was in her wedding dress when she boned him. <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile... Except Larry's a putz, we, so. we found that, that Frank, who is Larry's brother, has come across this box for these pleasures that he has not gotten in his normal mundane life but he gets a little bit more than he bargained for with the Cenobites and we he gets resurrected and we'll talk about this throughout um and is basically on a quest to become human again throughout the film so that that's pretty much it so talk talking about the things that I like about this film um I do happen to really love this story. Um, at its, at its basic core, it is a love story. Um, a lot of people boil it down to what a woman will do for a good fuck. I think it's a little bit more gray area than that. Um, you obviously get this Julia who married Larry and maybe there was some initial attraction at first, but I guess she has found over time that he's, he's a little bit of a dullard. He's a little bit of a wet blanket and you know, me personally, I'm uh, I'm a fan of the man's man. I think we've figured that out throughout this series. But uh, Frank offers something dangerous 
to her and something outside the box. I mean, you, you get the feeling. Uh-huh. I see what you did there. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't even trying to do that. But she has this very vanilla lifestyle with Larry. And I, I could see how the monotony of that would entice anybody to want to live dangerously a little bit. Or, as they say in The Witch, live deliciously. So I can understand that. Would I personally do what she did? No. But I understand her feelings. I can I can empathize with her feelings. I'm not sure how to take that statement. <laughs> Thanks. That, you're taking that completely the wrong way. But at any rate. Um, but at the same time, Frank is horrible. He's like, a bad person. He, he really is. Because while she is falling in love with this man, uh, or at least heavy infatuation with him, he doesn't give a shit about her at all. She's just another notch on the bedpost, another conquest. He could give a shit less. He's and just another STD passed along. Probably the fact that she's his brother's uh, fiance, that's probably just icing on the cake. Like, And then it very clearly shows that even after they've had sex, he's already bored with it. Like He's ready to move on. Which is what happens. He moves on from her, and then this is when, at you know, he goes to seek out the box. So not a good person. Um, but again, she has built up this encounter so much in her mind that she can only see it with rose colored glasses, even though in the novel, they say it had all the joys of rape, which doesn't make it sound like it was that great. But she's built it up so much in her mind that now she would die for this man. She would kill for this man. And as anybody who has ever really been in love, you that's another thing you can empathize with. Like, I mean, I'd kill somebody for you. Oh. <laughs> so you get it. And so you get to the point where when Frank does come back and he's asking her to do this huge thing for for him, you know, I need you to ki- to bring me people so that basically he can drain their life force to put more skin on his bones. Because he comes back as just, ah, like... I don't even know what to call him when he very first starts out. He's just like this walking bus bag. He's slime. Yeah. Through the floorboards. And then he's a skeleton covered in slime. And And at some point he works his way up to basically a skinned human body. Yeah. He's just walking muscle. So. And bleeding. It's gross. It's it's very disgusting. It's very wet. Yes. That whole sequence is very very, wet. It's very moist. (laughs) Don't say that word. Gross. And it's nasty. But... The special effects department did a great job making that as gross as possible. Good they job, really guys. Did. <laughs> but you go on this journey with her um, of what she, what lengths she will go through in order to have this man back. And yeah, she goes and she murders these unsuspecting guys thinking, thinking that they're just going to smash. And it turns into getting clocked over the head with a hammer and getting completely drained by this monster in the attic. It's just... It's, it's pretty crazy. And one of my favorite shots ever in film is the scene where Frank is busy killing one of these guys in the attic. And she excuses herself to the bathroom to clean up. And they have this shot, this close-up of her face. And her mascara has run. And she's covered in blood. Her skin's very pale. Her eyes are so bright. And... She just looks disgusted, like, what have I done? And it, it's the most beautiful shot I've seen in film ever. 
I love it. Um, but on the other side of that, we get Larry, who she's the trophy wife. That's what Julia is. She's the, she's the trophy wife to him. And he, he loves her. He adores her. And he's trying so hard to make this marriage work. And I think that's why they relocate to this house to begin with. Um, and you can tell that she's bored with him. She wants nothing to do with him. And, you know, all because of this encounter with Frank. Because he's a dead fuck. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but... Yeah, you see him going throughout, trying to figure out what's going on with her. And meanwhile, his daughter, Kirsty, has moved into the same town as them. And he's he's kind of recruited her to, hey, can you see what's going on with her? Can you find out? And um, and in the book, she's not his daughter, right? She's no, just no, no. a friend. Yeah, she's just his friend who's infatuated with him, basically. And, and in that one, Julie doesn't like her hanging around because she knows yeah. that she- Kirsty just wants to bone... Rory. In the book, his name is Rory instead of Larry. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, Which I'm glad they changed that, because if that was a daughter <laughs> and she just wanted to bone him, it would have made it all kinds of weird. Not yeah. that this movie's not weird enough. Well, then you get also that really weird dynamic of the incestuous stuff between Frank and Kirsty that I think would not have resonated. Or, I mean, it wouldn't have been... I don't know. It just it adds something to the film to make them uncle and niece as opposed to just guy and woman. Yeah, but I'm glad we didn't go there because then you're not, now it's not a Hellraiser movie, now it's The Hills Have Eyes. <laughs> right. So I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> but, um, so I, I guess I'm kind of with you about Kirsty as a final girl. I mean, while she did kind of step up there at the end, her character really doesn't have a lot to do throughout the movie. Um, She's obviously a girl that's just kind of trying to gain some independence and um, figure out who she is. And meanwhile, she's having these nightmares about Larry, like she thinks something awful is going to happen to him. And she's obviously suspicious of Julia's intentions and doesn't care for her. But she goes along with her dad and she ends up finding out exactly what Julia's up to. And... um, well, I don't think we mentioned it before. Julia is a stepmom. Yes. Not This is not Kirsty's mother. Yes. And uh, it never says what happened to her mother. No, just that she died. So. Yeah. Because you have the, that really gross scene with <laughs> the movers and then he's all like, got her daughter's looks and he's like, her mother's dead. Like, yeah, they never say exactly what happened, but it you just get this thing from Larry like... Um, it wasn't something, well, no death is good, but you just, you get the impression maybe it was some kind of bad death or something um, that he's not, maybe not over completely. But yeah, Kirsty just, she's really just kind of in the background throughout and um, they have this big dinner party kind of at the beginning um, after Larry cuts his hand and she meets this guy, Steve, and they kind of ha- start a little thing or whatever, but really weird, like. They, they have a scene where they're, like, making out in an alleyway, but then when you cut to Kirsty's apartment, they're sleeping in two separate beds. So, I don't know what was Quaker up with style. that. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> but yeah. that's another one of my favorite shots is this nightmare scene that Kirsty has where she's... there. It looks like there's feathers falling down or something, and she's, like, all sweaty and kind of bloody looking or makeup smeared and... She walks over to this bed and you hear this baby crying in the background and there's like a, a bed in a sheet with somebody under it and there's blood kind of oozing up through the sheet and 
very, again, very, very beautiful, beautifully shot. Some wonderful cinematography in there. But at the beginning, you know, we, we see what has happened to Frank to get him in this situation to begin with. And I think for everybody like me, um, or even the casual moviegoer, when he opens that box and you see these, these creatures show up, you're like, oh my God, what is that? Like, these what are- fuckery is this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a shock the first time you see it. Like, if you've never, if you don't know what Hellraiser is, you've never seen anything like it before. It, yeah. You'll pee a little. <laughs> Maybe not. But it's, it's definitely unique. Yeah. So... The design of these Cenobites is not like anything I've ever seen. It's not like anything I think we'll ever see again. It's just, com- it, you can tell it's completely out of somebody's imagination. Well, I know that Pinhead is is modeled after what's in his books, right? Are the other ones as well? Like in Hellbound Heart, does it cover what these other Cenobites look no, like? No, they really don't. There's no there's no deep throat. There's no chatter. There's no butterball at all. In and this. this is Cenobites, not to be confused with <laughs> Cinnabuns. Cinnabites. I always said this sounds like a tasty dessert. <laughs> yeah. Don't they have those at Sonic? Yeah, you go, they're Cine snacks, but Cine snacks. you don't know how many times I've gone to Sonic and been like, yes, I'd like the Cinnabites, please. <laughs> And they're so tasty. Man, wouldn't it be weird if they showed up? <laughs> it'd be it'd be funny though if you had some the person on the other end of the speaker go like, "Ha ha!" Let's see what you did there. Let's <laughs> see what you did, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so does he describe them that way? Well, like I said, he doesn't talk about those other Cenobites. Um, but for Pinhead himself, it's basically the same there's a little bit more to it and he doesn't describe them as having pins or nails uh, necessarily i mean he it is pins but he says there's jeweled pins and that there he does describe them as being at every intersection of his of his head like a tattoo almost um but he also says that his tongue is done up the same way and i keep thinking like how would he even be able to talk if his tongue is all colored in pins like this doesn't. It doesn't make sense a little bit to me. Well, but. He, then he would sound like that guy on Rat Race. Oh, the guy that got the tongue piercing. Yeah, I was thinking of that milk commercial, the Aaron Burr one, with the guy with the mouthful of peanut butter. You remember that one? No. Aaron Burr. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, he does. I said that it's really not huge differences between the way they're described, other than like I was saying earlier, where he sounds like a female. Um, but I've seen some kind of crude drawings that Clive Barker has done, and it seems like he always kind of had that image in his head. It's not really that far off, but the others, no, they're not, they're not talked about in, in the Hellbound Heart Yeah, because I know in, um, the Scarlet Gospels, he talks about other hell priests, but he never describes them. Well, Pinhead's the only hell priest. The rest of them are just Cenobites. Well, whatever they are. But he never he never describes any of them. He talks about them, but there's no... He, there are some that he talks about, and he'll talk about different features they have or don't have. Um, but... I'm talking about like an in-depth description of their Yeah, yeah. Some of them he does. I don't remember that. Yeah, there's... I can't remember the character's name. There is one in the Scarlet Gospels that's almost like a pet and he describes his, his face as being split down the middle I guess from nose to under his jaw where it's kind of flaps open 
like think about those vampires in Blade Two a little oh, okay. bit. So it it feels like it's kind of like that, and but it doesn't come back. Those two ends of the face don't come back together the way those vampires' faces do. It's like it permanently hangs open where his tongue is like dangling out the bottom. Like it's that's gross. Yeah, it is gross. But <laughs> but yes, I do believe he describes some of them. But I think there's only one hell priest. It's it's almost like it's a position or something. You know, they, they've got this giant hierarchy of different positions and even pinhead has a boss in that novel so um which if you haven't read it i urge you to seek it out you can even find it on youtube like an audiobook version of it um really really great great book um it's it's a melding together of hellraiser and lord of illusions if you've never seen that movie really great stuff um but yeah to go back to he, he, I think he's pretty dead on the way he had uh, Pinhead made up. And when he gave instructions to the lady in the makeup department, um, he wanted them to look like butchers. Um, what they call it? Repulsive glamour, I believe was the words that they used. So he, he did kind of have a thing in mind. And he looked at all these magazines of people doing extreme piercings and... Um, I don't, I don't want to jump to the conclusion of because Clive Barker being a gay man himself that he was just automatically into that scene, but it definitely that scene of BDSM and beyond was a heavy, heavy influence on this, obviously. See, and I was thinking that there's some Judas Priest stuff going on in there. Yeah. With all the leather. Yeah, hellbent right? for leather. <laughs> but the way that they're made up, like I said, is just not like anything we'd ever seen before. And I think... That was mostly the draw of this film for people because, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, Pinhead was never supposed to be our main antagonist. They were just a byproduct of Frank's exploration. But in reality, Julia was supposed to be our big bad. They they even intended to carry that over from part two and beyond. But they could not have anticipated just how big those characters, in particular Pinhead, was were going to become. They were a consequence. He is the face of that franchise. Yeah. So, and for good reason, because you, you come across a, a poster or box or trailer and you see him and you're like, oh my God, what is this? And you're, you're instantly drawn to it. You're intrigued and curious. Um, and I mean, I'm the same way. That's the way I was. Um, I understand that Julia and Frank were the real villains of this story, but they just didn't have what Pinhead had, you know? Again, I can, the the darker love story at the center of this is what got me ultimately. Um, like I said, give me a dark love story, twisted love story any day. I take those and run with them. Um, there's something oddly romantic about the lengths that she will go through just to have this man back in her life again. So I know you're looking at me like I'm fucking insane. Yeah, you're, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. So, well, obviously you don't love me enough. I do, but I'm not going to feed you people. <laughs> you don't know what you're capable of until you're in that situation. All right, maybe I would. <laughs> feed me. Feed me, Seymour. <laughs> You've never seen Little Shop of Horror. <laughs> but ultimately, Kirsty finds out what Frank and Julia are up to. And by the time she really gets around to trying to warn her dad... 
Julie and Frank have already kind of conspired that they're going to kill Larry and steal his skin because Frank is, he's too impatient with Julia's speed of bringing him maybe, because we don't know how long, or how long she's been doing this. If she's bringing him a couple of guys a week, a guy a week, a guy a month, you know? So it's obviously at a pace that he's not happy with. And ultimately they decide to take, uh, Larry's skin, um, and this is always something that's baffled me. By the time we get around to Frank being wearing Larry's skin, it's not clean. There's nothing like clean about it. You can see where the seams don't match up. He's got like shit oozing like in his hairline and around his ears. And Kirsty never looks at him. And also this being her dad and she doesn't know what his own fucking eye color is. At no point does she ever be like, Dad? Okay, well, when it comes to eye color, we've talked about that in several different movies now, and people apparently in movies just don't pay attention. I pay attention. But well, no, I'm talking about the people in the movies. Yeah. They just don't. Doesn't yeah. occur to them. She never said, Dad, is everything okay? Is something wrong? Like, you know, she never makes Hey, Dad, it. you look fucked up. Maybe you should go to the doctor. <laughs> right. Like you're bleeding from your scalp. Maybe you should see somebody about that. Yeah. At no point ever, she's just like... I don't know. Maybe it's just the heightened. Maybe she's maybe she's just in such a state of stress that she she's not thinking clearly. But I I also have to say that um, Andrew Robinson did such an amazing job in the role of Larry slash Frank because you really buy him at the beginning of just being this little meek waspy dude. So by the time he flips it over and he's playing the role of Frank, he's fucking scary. Like he's, I don't even know how to describe it, but he just flipped it on a dime. Like he, he could be very meek at the beginning and then be completely terrorizing in the next second. You know, when, when Kirsty makes that, when she, the fucking light bulb finally comes on and she's like, oh my God, this is not my dad. And Larry just stalked, or not Larry, sorry. Um, Frank stalks her through the house. It's just a testament to Andrew Robinson's acting ability because I really thought that he pulled both of those roles off very well. Um, and the line, Jesus wept when he's getting pulled apart at the very end, that was an ad lib because I think Clive Barker had it written as just for him to respond with, fuck you. And he said, he's like, well, no, why don't we try Jesus wept? And he's like, all right, that's great. Let's roll with it. You know, and that he he really brought something to the character of Frank that I don't feel like their original British actor had about him or skinless Frank had about him. Andrew Robinson himself really brought something to that character. He was very very menacing. But going going back to these are these are the things that I like about it. The practical effects are amazing. Um, everybody did really great work. The Frank resurrection scene was a lot of, um, reverse photography. Like, um, they had the body built to begin with and then destroyed it. Um, or to make the melting effect, they would use hair dryers over the wax of the body. Um, they would, when the stuff is oozing up through the floor, they did that in reverse where they were actually sucking the stuff out of the floor beneath. It's, it's a lot of really cool shit. It's very interesting if you can find, um, those documentaries to see just how they did all that. Because again, on the money that they had, it's just unreal what they did. Um, I love, like I said, I love the story. All of that is, is 
it was a story that I didn't, wouldn't have expected myself to get as invested in as I did, but it really just sucked me in hook, line, and sinker to where, yeah, this is my favorite franchise now. Um, and I, I also can't, I'd be remiss to talk about Hellraiser and not talk about the beautiful score by Christopher Young. Um, these are scores that I own now. They're on my iPhone um, that I listen to periodically because it's just wonderful. And Christopher Young has done great work over the years. Like another one of my favorite, uh, we talked about it in our early episodes. He also did Tales from the Hood, which I also enjoy. Um, I believe he worked on the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Like the guy is really, really fucking talented. That's a pretty diverse portfolio there. Right. Um, and maybe I, I have heard people say that the score seems a little dramatic for what it is, but I think that just adds to the movie, this big orchestral, uh, choir style type of thing. And it's, it's, yeah, it's beautifully, beautifully scored. I love it so much. It's good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so I think we've established that Travis, like we said, he knows this movie probably, he's probably seen it, you've seen it a bunch of times. I've seen it a lot. I haven't seen it a fraction of the times that you have. Right. But, yeah, I've seen it a lot. <laughs> I haven't always been paying attention to it, but I've been present when it was was on. Okay, so do, do we want to talk favorite kills then? Um, You can, yeah. <laughs> you are no fun today. I, so, <laughs> Julia kills people with a hammer. Larry gets killed with chains in his face, and he gets pulled apart. That's it, right? Like, there's not a lot of diverse kills in this one. I think that doesn't count, like, the second one, right? When they get Leviathan in there, and then there's some stuff in there. And then the third one, obviously, you get a lot of the weird transformation type stuff. Uh -huh. But this one's a lot of her bashing guys over the back of the head with a hammer. You know, you're right. You are right. Um, but that being said, I do have to go with Larry's death at the end because um when you know it's one of those oh shit i'm fucked moments where larry has that moment of realization when the lights creeping in through the walls and he he says what the hell is that it's like you know what it is bitch <laughs> sorry always sunny but um <laughs> he sees the light creeping in and he's suddenly making that that realization that like i'm all kinds of fucked um kirsty has set him up and the, he just kind of, it, it's like they torture him for a few minutes first, where they're just kind of slowly um, doing hooks in various areas of his body. And yeah, when they had his face all stretched out, did you think like he looks kind of like a garbage pail kid? <laughs> I'm not. Like, I think they had one that looked kind of like I'm not that. entirely versed on the garbage pail kids. Well, I wasn't either. I just, that's what I think about every time I see his face all stretched like, out. I know I'm a child of the 80s and I should know what they are, but that just wasn't, wasn't anything that I ever had any direct contact with, I guess. Yeah. I certainly didn't see the movie. But no. <laughs> but no, they kind of, before they even stick the ones in his face, it's like they're toying with him first. Like they're like a cat playing with a mouse or they just kind of hook him up by the hands a little bit, but then they have this giant fucking, what do you, would you even call that? I feel like it's those hooks like that you maybe have on the back of a wrecker truck or, you know, um, to tow a car, but they had that giant one just go slowly through his back and he's screaming the whole time. And it's, it's a very visceral 
scene. Um, and then, yeah, they do finally put the hooks in his face and he just looks and he licks his lips. And even though, like I said, he's screaming the whole time, you do still get a sense that there's still a little bit of enjoyment in it. Yeah, he's still got a chubby. Because... He's still he's still having a good time because he is still antagonizing Kirsty throughout with the licking of the lips. He's he's taunting her mm-hmm. even even though he's in this state, and then says Jesus wept, and then the chains stretch out and he, he explodes. I don't I don't get that. I guess that he explodes. Um, no, but that's what happened. I think a more realistic version came in uh, Hellraiser Inferno when the same thing happened to our main character. Only when the train that the chain stretched, it just exposed the skinless body that collapsed. I would think that would be a little bit more realistic, yeah. but but no, they gave us they gave us a death. Um, so yeah, not really a whole lot of kills, but that would be my favorite. I, I would guess it's it's the most inventive. I mean, well, okay, technically they did kill Frank at the beginning, but in in the same fashion, same way, yeah, more or less. But, um, yeah, that's my favorite. Um, let's see. Do you have a favorite scene from this movie? Um, no. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is just not, it's not one of my movies. This is, you know, it's one of your movies. I think probably one of the ones that's the most interesting to look at is when the light starts coming through the walls. To me, that was always really creepy. You know what I mean? When you can see the that sort of bluish light coming through the, the slats, which shouldn't be there, but it is. And then, you know, when they kind of transform the room, it goes, I guess, from just a normal room. And then uh, all of a sudden you get the blue light and the hooks and shit hanging down. That's pretty cool. I think my favorite scene probably is is immediately following uh, Frank's death in that Kirsty is trying to solve the box, trying to figure out how to send them back. And as she's sitting hunched down in the floor working on this box, we the room is pitch black, by the way, and we see Pinhead slowly raise up behind her. And he says, we have such sights to show you. Oh, my God. Like, see, I didn't even remember that oh shot. Oh, my God. I love that shot. Like, because of remastering and shit now, it's not nearly as dark as it used to be because you can see crown molding on the walls and and stuff. You can see room details, but when I watched it on VHS and everything was completely dark and he just rises up slowly behind her and then they do this close-up of his face. So fucking terrifying. Um, but ultimately now, completely brilliant for me. That's Like I said, it's it's my favorite, but also, oh my God, so, so fucking scary. Um, and Kirsty even like turns around and looks and is like, shit, which would be my reaction. Um, well, maybe not. It might not be re- my reaction. There's a scene in Hellraiser 3, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point where, um, the pillar of souls is broken down. Pinhead has escaped and, um, he extends his hand out to Terry for him to join him. I, that, that's probably more my speed, <laughs> but at any rate. It is probably my favorite scene of the first one, and um, I don't know that that's tough actually because the scene where Kirsty first opens the box while she's sitting in the hospital and she meets the engineer or what's called the engineer in this film, um, which is just this. I don't even know how to describe that monster. It's just this weird. How do you describe that? I don't know what you're talking about. So you remember she op- she's sitting in the hospital. 
and she opens the box and then the walls of the hospital open and she goes down this corridor and then then there's this monster meeting her at the back and it's this big pink monster thing with this giant eyeballs and then he starts and you can see people wheeling him in the bottom if you look real closely. Yeah, he's got like, I guess a tail that sort of curves up behind him. Like a scorpion. And, And two arms. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he just kind of pulls himself along with the, with two arms and yeah. But um he's like I don't know which uh <laughs> which which Nightmare on Elm Street was it? The Dream Demons? You know, they look like little sperm. <laughs> he it's like that but with arms. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I guess I could see that. But at any rate, after she escapes from it, that's when the Cenobites show up for the first proper time i mean you get them for that few seconds in the very beginning when frank gets killed but when they come for the first time and uh pinhead gives this big dialogue you know the box you opened it we came like that that line delivery and the booming of doug bradley's voice i don't know if that's so much a a big speech more like a haiku (laughs) did it have enough lines to be a haiku i don't think so the box. You opened it. We came. Yeah. 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 It's a haiku. Good job. <laughs> and then the chatterer, like, pinning Kirsty against the wall and sticking its fingers in her mouth. Like... Okay, now that's just nasty. It's such... It's such a great scene. Um, I, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. I really Every can't. time he does that, I think about Fight Club. <laughs> you don't know where I've been. <laughs> oh. Where oh. I've been. Oh, yeah, it's gross, but yes, that first real proper introduction to the Cenobites is also a standout for favorite scene for me. Um, and we also had like this little side plot of the vagrant that's kind of been skulking in the shadows. He shows up to Kirsty's job at the pet store, and Are you he talking about the cricket eater? The cricket eater, yeah. Ugh, that's so nasty. And at the they end, they weren't even salted crickets. Shit. So I think everybody took away something different from the ending than I did because the vagrant shows back up. Kirsty has thrown the box into a, a bonfire, just a random bonfire outside. And then the vagrant shows up and he picks up the box out of the fire. And then all of a sudden he turns into, and everybody says it's a dragon. Everybody that I've ever heard talk about it says he turns into a dragon and flies away with the box. Like a a skeletal dragon because he's just bones. In my mind, I always thought it was a demon. You know, because you always picture demons sort of being the same way with with wings and horns and all that stuff. So that's what I took away from it. I never got dragon. And that is, it's also a really, I don't know. It's a weird ending, but it's it's pretty cool. And then you see that the guy who Frank picked up the box from, and I think it's Morocco, originally moving on to the next guy, and that's where the movie ends. Um, I think if I had only one one thing, one nitpick, is I would have loved more time with the Cenobites. Oh, what do you think? Um, I think it would have made it more interesting to have more time with them. Because I, you know, like I, said, I really didn't care about what was going on with Julia and Frank. Larry was just Larry and Kirsty both were just vanilla. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, not even sprinkles. Like just vanilla, which <laughs> is okay sometimes. But there wasn't anything there for me to get excited about. So the the Cenobites were the thing that was different. Because I mean, if you'd have taken them out, then it's just some weird ass love story, right? And they make it supernatural. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, probably some more time with them. Um, backstory, because I'm, I'm, you know, I like the history part of it. Mm-hmm. I think give me some backstory on all of them, and now I'm in. You know, where did they come from? How did they end like this? What kind of fucked up shit did they do to earn this punishment, or to want it? Hmm. But yeah, I think that would have been better for me. How about you? Well, unfortunately, we are in a time frame uh, because of what our new normal is. Because I could talk about this movie probably all day. So you have many favorite parts. I have many favorite parts. Like, a lot of them. All of the movie. But those two are the ones that stand out for me in particular. Um, Like I said, I don't really have any complaints with this movie. Um, Ashley Lawrence was a first-time actor. And so I do believe that they said... If they could change her performance, they might have. They felt like she was a little wet behind the ears and didn't didn't exactly give them the performance. I think they feel like she hammed it up a little bit. But I thought she was fine. Um, she's not my favorite final girl, obviously. That would go to Nancy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um, but she, she, you know, she kind of stepped up. And even there's this, this one point where she's trying to fix the box and poor Steve, he goes up and he tries to help her. And she gives him this fucking elbow, like get the fuck out of my way. And, um, I, I don't like being critical of actors or actresses performance. And, but I would say with hers, it wasn't, wasn't great. You know what I mean? She wasn't Jamie Lee Curtis and, or Sigourney Weaver or, you know what I mean? I'm not a huge Heather Langenkamp fan. So yeah, no. But hers wasn't hers wasn't bad where you're like she shows up on screen and you're like oh shit you know what I mean yeah it didn't stand out for being bad mm-hmm. I mean I felt like her performance was appropriate for the movie mm-hmm. so I, I got no complaints about her um, the only other minor nitpick I got was or, or have is that for some reason the studio um, they were like we don't want this to be set in Britain. Because it is a British movie. I mean, it, it is, whether, regardless what they wanted it to be, it is a British movie. But they wanted to make this sort of like Halloween, where it's any town USA, for some reason. Um, they were talking about that they just moved from Brooklyn, or whatever. But throughout, there's so many British people in this cast that it's like, there's... There's no part in the United States where you just have, like, this community of British people. So it's just, I just found that really weird. And then you get these weird dubs, like Sean Chapman, who plays uh, proper Frank, he's dubbed over with an American actor. And it just doesn't sound right. Um, By the time you get to part two, he's actually using his own accent, you know, doing American accent himself. And he sounded fine. So I don't understand why they felt the need to dub him over with somebody else. I think British people can do an American accent a hell of a lot better than American people can do a British accent. True. Because when we try to do it, it stands out. Yeah. Like, well, that's crap. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're watching Tom Holland do Spider-Man, you wouldn't know he's not American. Oh, my God. Yeah, that interview we watched with him when uh, Jack Septicide did with him and that girl with only one name. Zendaya. As soon as he opened his mouth, I'm like, shit, did they pull him out of the cast of Snatch? Yeah. (laughs) He sounded like Brad Pitt in that movie. Yeah, he sounded very cockney. And so that's a testament, again, to how well you can pull off an American accent. So I don't know why they didn't just go with that guy's voice. Because he sounds fine in part two. So it's kind of like the way they dubbed over Doug Bradley in Nightbreed, where they gave him some German accent. But if you go back and watch the Cabal cut or the director's cut, and they put Doug Bradley's actual voice in there, he was fine. He was fine. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so now was this a New Line film or was this a Dimension film? This was New World. New World. Yeah, this it doesn't was, exist. I believe anymore. this was a, a company owned by Roger Corman back in the day. Um, and if you don't know who Roger Corman is, because you're looking at me like you no, have I know no who idea. Roger Corman is. Okay, so you know he made a lot of weird B type movies in the past. Um, but this company did not last very long. It kind of folded. I don't, I don't believe they had just a lot of films under their hat. So, well, the reason I ask is because if it was dimension, dimension is a division of Miramax. Yeah. And Miramax is, they, they interfere. Yeah. Dimension did pick up the series. That's right. where they, they but, came in during Inferno. But my point is, is when they were saying they didn't want it set in America, in, in Britain and they didn't want all the stuff and then you got to dub over the accent. That's not, that's a Miramax thing. Yeah. So. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I've never. It's those who we will not. It's Voldemort. <laughs> yeah. We don't talk about them. Yeah. But I think they're kind of notorious for meddling in but, movies. Yeah. But I guess I don't, I don't understand why. I don't why, know who the hell New World is. So. I guess I don't understand why they thought, well, people aren't going to watch this movie if it's set in Britain. Like, who says? I didn't have a problem with it being set in Britain. Um. If Changes anything, nothing for me. Yeah, if anything, it brought more flavor to it. You know, it's. I always think it's interesting to see something outside of what we're used to, different cultures and uh, different... I mean, their architecture alone over there is completely different than what ours is, so... Well, I think there's an escapist element to watching movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You get to see stuff that you wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to watch a movie shot in my front yard because it's my front yard. I see it every day. Like you see right. it, it's who gives a shit. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a, an attraction to seeing movies that are filmed in locations other than where you live, just because you get to see something new. Mm-hmm. And I think we've been so saturated here in America with movies that were set in New York or set in Chicago or they're set in Los Angeles that you kind of feel like you know those places even if you haven't been there. Right. So, yeah, give me something different. Which is, and this is completely off topic, but I just have to go with it. Like, you just brought up. In all of our films, we have these locations that it's it's the same locations all the time. So this this year, I started watching the show Yellowstone, and I've never been to Montana. So when I get to see the show that's that's filmed in Montana, I was like, oh my god! Like this is this state is beautiful. Like I kind of want to go now just to see it. So yeah, it's great to sometimes visit places that we don't see all the time already. We've seen New York thousands of times. It's like old hat now. So yeah, if they had shot in Britain, I wouldn't, I mean, they did shoot in Britain, but why not just say that it's there in London or wherever they're at? Like who cares? Yeah. And if they feel like that's been overused, pick another place in England. (laughs) Like I don't, like yeah. we're gonna shoot at Birmingham, okay? I don't. I've never been there. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, it's like uh, American Werewolf in London, where you got to see like Piccadilly and stuff. Is really yeah. cool getting to see all these places you've never seen before. Yeah. So, I don't I, know. They get weird about stuff like that, though. Filmmakers do, and and uh, your your studios, I think, mm-hmm. or producers, whatever the hell New World was. Yeah, like they you, you maybe you start off with a good idea, and this is that whole interference thing, the studio interference. It's like. You come in with a good idea, but they have their idea already, even though the movie hasn't been made yet, on what's going to make it successful. And so they put conditions on the filmmaker like this. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you can make the movie, but it can't be set in this specific location. Well, you you don't know if that would work or not, because it's not been done. 
right? Mm-hmm. So I think they it, there's they should just stay out of it, really. Right. But anyway. Anyway, I, I like I said, I'm sure I could talk about this for many more hours. I will say, um, I I don't normally condone this, but the Leviathan documentary only came with this uh, Hellraiser box set called the Scarlet Collection or something like that. And so it's super rare. It's really hard to come by. And I think Shudder, they, they kind of off and on have it. But for some reason, they never have both parts to it at once. It's like they have part one or they have part two. They never hardly have them together showing at the same time. They did for a little bit and then they took it down. I'm not sure what's up there right now. But again, not condoning this. You can get on YouTube and you can find people who have uploaded this. Um so I've got it saved because <laughs> it's a really long, in-depth documentary. I think it's over four hours long. Are you promoting piracy? I'm not promoting piracy, but Arg. when you're as into something as I am and there's literally no way of being able to find this thing that you want to see so bad, you know, it's not like um, In Search of Darkness where you can buy the thing and then you turn around and they're going to have it streaming on Shutter forever after that. It, you know, if you're going to make a documentary, make it for the people, not, you know, just one select group of people who can afford this giant box set. Well, I think this one is like, uh, it's like the Cabal Cut, isn't it? Yeah. On Nightbreed, that it's really hard to find. And when you yes. do, it's like $200 for a movie. Exactly. So. Yeah. So sad. But um, I guess that'll lead me into um, our con- content creator of the week because last season... We were all about the YouTubers. And so this season, I want to be all about the podcasters. It has been our experience so far that the podcasting community is very tight-knit and very close and very supportive of each other. I've made some wonderful friends throughout our last three months, um, discovered podcasts that I would have never have known about. Um, I've got a lot of great, wonderful acquaintances and friends now just through through doing this that I'm so happy about. Um, And so this week I want to plug, because we're on the subject, I want to plug the Hellraiser podcast. Um, Travis actually turned me on to these guys several months ago, uh, kind of when lockdown, we were still in the middle of lockdown and we were just kind of looking for something to listen to instead of the same 200 songs we listen to all the time. And He was like, well, let's see if I type in Hellraiser, what comes up? Actually, I think it might have been Nightbreed. Um, Yeah, it was. He was like, let's type this in and see what comes up. And the Hellraiser podcast popped up. And so I was like, okay, cool. So, oh, actually, it was because you and I were listening to the Nightbreed audiobook at the time. That's what we were doing. So, yeah, he typed it in. Hellraiser podcast came up. um, Got these two British guys, Phil and Peter. Um... And they have two channels, but they have one that's entirely devoted to the Hellraiser series. Um, they, they've gone through and they've watched every movie. They do drunken commentaries, which are always a riot. Um, they do Hellraiser news. They keep you up to date on what's going on and behind the uh, new projects that are coming up. Um, and they have offshoots of Hellraiser, just other projects that this cast and crew are involved in, and other Clyde Barker movies and stories. Uh, they go through comic books. Like, it's, these guys, 
may love it more than I do. And I love it, you know, so much. I hold it in such esteem. But these guys take it a step further. And their other channel is called Horror Movie Maniacs, where they go through and do other films. But if you get the opportunity, um, go into whatever streaming, or not streaming, whatever platform you're using and search Hellraiser Podcast. Um, Those guys are on Twitter also. They're on Facebook. Um, Look them up and there's so much Hellraiser content to choose from. Like, you'll be busy for months, probably. But hello, Phil. Hello, Peter. Thank you for giving us such great content. And I guess that's going to do it for us this week and carrying on with our love theme for the month of February. I think we're going to cover My Bloody Valentine next. Yes? Sure. Yay. I like that one. Harry we, we're doing the Canadish version. The right? Canadish, yes. Good. Yeah. We're sorry if we screw that Nothing one up. Nothing against Dean Winchester. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not the remake. The but original. That's what I'm saying. Nothing <laughs> against him. He's beautiful. But... <laughs> That movie's not great. If we're going to do one, I'd rather it, do the original. It has its merits, but we're going to be covering Canadian it too. version, because that's my favorite of the two. We're going we're gonna to cover both. But yes, in my opinion, the first film is far superior. Far superior. <laughs> and I even, a friend of mine and listener, um, Allison, she has commissioned me to crochet a uh, Harry Warden doll. So... We're going to see how that works out. And guys, if uh, if you haven't hopped over to my shop, um, shameless plug, I know. But I do horror dolls all the time. Uh, my shop is on Etsy. Um, and it's called Magpie Creations Co. And I do different horror dolls. I've made dolls for uh, my friends, for Dr. Wolfula. Um, and yeah, Harry Warden's going to be a challenge. i got to see if I can make a little 5 by 7 minor guy. <laughs> I think the body will be easy-ish. It's the gas mask that you're gonna. Yeah, have that's gonna that's gonna be some work for sure. But guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming back. We're we're excited to be starting a new season, and uh, yeah, we hope you stick around for even longer. We're we're excited. Hope you enjoy the new format. Yes, we do. And as always. Any requests, any questions, feel free to follow us on social media. I'll give all that info out in just a minute. But until next time, see you guys. Bye. Hey guys, quick reminder to find us on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as SpookyMom83 and Travis on Twitter as TravisL80. And find our official page on Instagram and Twitter at Dead and Married. If you have any questions or suggestions for films or otherwise, feel free to email us at deadandmarried at yahoo.com. Later.